Welcome to the Asia Chessboard, the podcast that examines geopolitical dynamics in Asia and takes an inside look at the making of grand strategy. I'm Andrew Schwartz. In this episode, Mike sits down with Will Inboden. He's the Associate Professor of Public Policy and Director of the Clements Center at the University of Texas at Austin. Will is also a former senior National Security Council official for strategic planning. Mike and Will unpack popular misconceptions about the application of history to grand strategy and discuss the critical place of values in American foreign policy. They also preview Will's forthcoming book, The Peacemaker, Ronald Reagan and the White House, From War to Peace. So, Will, I've learned more from you uh, on the NSC staff when we worked together for George W. Bush and as a scholar since about how to use history and statecraft. And you're really making that a core theme of your career and training a new generation at UT Austin at the Clements Center, which we'll get to. But tell me how you got into this whole foreign policy business and, and interested in strategy. It was a bit of a circuitous route. I mean, so growing up as a kid in Tucson, Arizona, I loved reading military history, histories of World War II, loved visiting the Pima Air Museum, you know, the uh, world's largest outdoor air museum to see the old World War II and Cold War aircraft there. Then when I was in college at Stanford, I was majoring in history and IR, but decided I had a calling to go into the ministry. And uh, so gave up my interest in politics and policy and instead wanted to go to seminary to be a pastor. And my junior year at Stanford, I arranged an internship with the chaplain of the Senate, thinking if you can learn how to do ministry with politicians, you can learn how to do ministry with anybody. And a week before I was supposed to travel to Washington to do the internship, the Senate chaplain staff notified me that he had to take a medical leave of absence from the job. Uh, he uh, had, was in poor health and shortly thereafter died, actually. And so I had this one-way ticket to D.C. and my internship totally fell through. Um, so I talked to a couple of friends from D.C. and they helped uh, line up an internship for me with um, then-Senator Dan Coates, who was on the Armed Services Committee. And that three-month internship totally got me re-engaged again on foreign and defense policy. It then led to my first job after graduation, working for Senator Sam Nunn, of course, here with the CSIS board, mm-hmm. and then in, in turn, a, a career in foreign policy. So it all goes back to uh, maybe the, the hand of God intervening and uh, moving me in a di- different direction back into policy. I'm discovering a Sam Nunn uh, foreign policy um, uh, peculiarity because, you know, John Hamry, who was his principal staffer on the Senate Armed Services Committee, also went to Divinity School. Yes, yes, and I know. Trained, John and I uh, have and yeah, trained for the, for the ministry. Yeah. What did you take away from that in terms of strategy? This was in the mid-90s. It was at Senate, you know, towards the end of Senator Nunn's time in the Senate. And it was a fascinating time as a you know, young person to be working on American foreign policy. Of course, of course, we're dealing with the aftermath of the Cold War. He and Dick Luger had teamed up on you know, the Nunn-Luger cooperative threat program reduction. Uh, we were working with the Clinton administration on uh, you know, some of the Balkans in- interventions, uh, trying to reinvigorate some parts of American human rights and democracy promotion. Now that there's a new window. And for me, it was a lot of fun. It was a somewhat unprecedented. You know, We now look back and see the unipolar moment. Um, But it also was raised in a lot of bigger questions. How does all this fit together? What does all this mean? Are we just making up policy on on the fly here in this uncharted territory? Are there any historical continuities or discontinuities? And so that's what actually prompted me to go back to grad school and do my PhD at Yale studying in the grand strategy program there. A lot of self-proclaimed grand strategists in the post-war era argue, and even in the pre-war era in the United States, argue, like one of my professors at Johns Hopkins, Bob Osgood, that grand strategy is about getting rid of all your idealism and uh, focusing on your so-called self-interests, as Osgood put it. And so when you went to Yale, when you studied grand strategy, you wrote about Ronald Niebuhr, right? And Yes. Yeah. So um, what's your answer to this question or this proposition that a lot of 
grand strategy to put forward that to be like Metternich, to be like Castlereagh, to be a real grand strategy, you have to be real politics. You have to get rid of idealism, get rid of values, and focus on pure power. I, I'm sure you don't agree with that, but what, what, what's your take on it? How do you fight yeah, against I, that? I don't. I think that's a rather desiccated view of strategy and national power. I mean, I, I think, you know, I, I start on a principle of grand strategy is doing an inventory of what are all of your nat, uh, national resources and assets. And one of America's great assets is our values, is our rather singular values and how those have been rather inspiring to, to so many in, in the rest of the world. And so particularly in the early Cold War, when I was looking at Niebuhr's influence on Truman and on Eisenhower, so it was an interaction of you know, some of the religious uh, principles there, but also uh, you know, our early efforts to develop the Cold War grand strategy, you really saw for them there was not that sharp divide between interests and values, but rather America's values were a strong asset, helped shape our interests, and gave us some asymmetric advantages, especially uh, when you saw the Iron Curtain go, going going up and this new model of Soviet totalitarianism. We realized our values provide a pretty dramatic uh, and inspiring contrast to that. Let's talk about that for a minute. We'll, we'll get into Asia and, and history and statecraft and other dimensions. But how important is um, the morality of our own foreign policy and our own society in our foreign policy? Mm-hmm. You know, people are now looking back at George Kennan's long telegram, and it ends with the warning that if we can't be a model uh, of democratic values ourselves, we're not going to win the Cold War. And mm-hmm. as we gear up for a new strategic competition with China, Walter Russell Meade, John Hamry, others are looking back at Kennan. Um, how important is it that we be perceived as a morally upright nation mm-hmm. to be effective in strategy? I think it's supremely important. Uh, and, and again, you know, some and some important caveats here. Uh, you know, politics and grand strategy does involve the art of compromise, uh, the art of prudence, the the art of making difficult choices. And uh, and and so, even if we may have some certain principles as our lodestars, there can be different ways of advancing them, right? So uh, so that's where prudence comes in. Uh, but again, I think Kennan was exactly right that one of the keys to America's long term success in the Cold War was staying true to who we are, even if the implementation varied at times. But this is where, uh, you know, Kennan himself was deeply influenced by Niebuhr. I, you know, I certainly am as, as well. And one of Niebuhr's principles is order precedes justice. Okay. So, so being cognizant of power realities, being cognizant of the need to preserve basic order and stability, those are not amoral. Um, there, there's a moral good in preserving order and stability as long as you don't stop there. Because again, for Niebuhr, order precedes justice and creates the conditions the opportunities for uh, justice to eventually be realized, at least in a, in a proximate sense. You drafted much of the second national security strategy for President Bush. I had the privilege of working with you on it and reading the first draft. I remember that the president uh, loved the content, but it, it sounded like Thomas Jefferson. So you had to use the exact same concepts to make it sound like George W. Bush. Yeah. The president used to say to me, and I'm sure to you, the key is to be a realist in the short term, but an idealist in the long term. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, always try to bend the arc of history towards a more just yeah. uh, international society. But they're tough calls in foreign policy. Like if you look at Asia right now, we have the Uyghur situation. We have the million people in the streets in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. Um, Where do you apply American power to advance those short-term challenges to human rights and democracy? Yeah. I want to come to that, but first, because you mentioned President Bush and the national security strategy, a a funny anecdote from that. Yeah, when uh, Peter Fever and I uh, sat down with him to go over sort of the first initial draft of the document, um, I'll never forget, he said to us, he says, guys, all right. 
you're off to a decent start here, but this reads like a couple professors wrote it. <laughs> and he didn't mean that as praise. <laughs> he said, I want you to write a, write a strategy that the man on the street in Lubbock, Texas can understand. Um, yeah. And at first, I was a little taken aback, but then I realized there's actually uh, quite a bit of wisdom in that, partly because we wanted the strategy to be you know, somewhat accessible to, to the American people. But also, academics are prone to um, obfuscating and hiding behind big words uh, and, and dense, ponderous language when clarity of prose can also bring, I think, clarity of strategic concept. So, And it came out, I thought, very, very well. So. Um, and uh, you artfully took uh, the sort of enlightenment uh, prose and turned it into Lubbock prose without losing, <laughs> it, without losing a thing. You know, in my book, I found um, Thomas Jefferson, uh, Commodore Perry Hope in Japan, Alfred mm-hmm. Thayer Some of those most important and ambitious thinkers in Asia realized we had a stake in justly governed republics that would resist imperialism. There's a real mm-hmm. politic power dimension mm-hmm. that sort of aligns with how President Bush talked to us about idealism in the long term. But yeah. in the short term, you do face moral challenges in foreign policy, like the Uyghur situation yeah. Uh, yeah. in Xinjiang. And I'm focusing on Asia, of course, the Rohingya and the Rakhine state and yeah. Myanmar, uh, Hong Kong and the Bear Ocean. How, how, do you, how do you deal with the short-term crises? Yeah. I think this is where, again, prudence and, uh, and good judgment come in. So you always want to keep in mind the long-term goal of more free, open, tolerant societies that are not brutalizing their, their own people. Because, of course, we see a pretty strong empirical connection between ones that are brutalizing their own people are often more aggressive externally and don't uphold international order. But, I mean, I was just in China and Hong Kong last week. And, yeah, the signs are very troubling right now. We happen to be in China on June 4th, the 30th anniversary of Tiananmen Square, and one could not find any mention of it anywhere. You know, the way that not only has the Chinese government gotten away with that brutal massacre 30 years later, but they've now, you know, squelched all awareness of it. While I'm generally supportive of the current administration's more assertive posture towards China, I do worry that our relative silence on the democracy and human rights front is, um, it's actually not smart politics. It's giving up an important tool in our toolkit. Uh, again, an asymmetric advantage we'd have over Beijing. I mean, it's perhaps a little trite to say it, but I think um, Xi Jinping fears his own people more than he fears the United States. And if we can be more, uh, you know, you know, sophisticated but still principled in our support for the democracy and human rights and religious freedom dissidents in China, certainly speaking out on behalf of the Uyghurs, especially uh, speaking out and doing more to support the the, the protesters in Hong Kong, because I think a Rubicon really is, is being, being crossed there. I think that would actually strengthen our hand also in our negotiations with China on the economic front and the security front and elsewhere. It opens up a new dimension, if you will, in the relationship where the United States and our allies and our values would give us more of an advantage. So much of official Washington and uh, wonkish policy Washington has become so skeptical of the proposition you're now articulately explaining, which I agree with. We did surveys, as you know, at CSIS of elites in 10 countries in Asia Mm. and the United States. And we asked in the future integration of Asia how important are certain principles. And we included things like human rights and democracy. Mm -hmm. And outside of China, support for those norms was incredibly high. When we did the last survey in 2015, it was an aggregate. It was higher, but in one country to drop precipitously, the United States of America. U.S. experts were skeptical that these democratic norms were right or worked. There's a real sort of lack of confidence in our own value proposition, mm-hmm. if you will. National Public Radio had a fascinating man-on-the-street interview in, in a second-tier city in China and asked, what do you think of when you think of the United States? And the first few answers were from random people, democracy, freedom. And we forget sometimes how powerful this is as an asset. 
Tell us a little bit about the Clement Center and how you teach and think about using history and statecraft, and then we'll apply some of those ideas to Asia. Yeah, when we started the Clement Center for National Security at University of Texas at Austin six years ago, the idea was to create a you know an academic teaching and research center, also doing policy engagement, focused on this intersection of applying the insights of history to current national security challenges. Um, you know, there are many excellent security studies programs and centers at a lot of leading universities in, in in the country, and I you know value all of them. But we found, at least at the time, that there were very few, if any, that had that particular focus on history. So many others were dominated by you know political science science and quantitative methodology, again, which is, can be very insightful, but it's, it's missing the, the historical part. And of course, I knew from you know my experience as a policymaker that uh, almost all senior national security policymakers, in their very limited spare time, like to read history. Um, it's the the discipline that's most accessible to them. They most naturally gravitate to it, partly because it's often constituted as a narrative. There's a story that they can get their minds around. Partly because it deals so much with real life flesh and blood individuals. And again, that's often who they're dealing with in their statecraft, rather than you know abstract concepts of you know, of balance of power international institutions. Those, those are two. But at the end of the day, it really is about those personal interactions. And history brings that history brings that, that alive. So we're trying to do a program of uh, teaching and training our students to think historically, uh, not just for its own sake, but as preparation for careers in, in national security policy. You invited me down to the Lone Star Seminar, mm-hmm. which I guess the UT system does collectively. Yeah, in partnership with uh, Texas A&M and SMU, too. Yeah, so, yeah. and uh, to present on a chapter from my, my book on the history of your strategy in Asia. And it was... Uh, and, an excellent book, I should thank add, you very in much. case we need any more, any more prompts for it. Yeah. And, and, and to my staff, don't edit that part out. <laughs> um, I had a wonderful time, and, and the, the format is uh, one historian, one political scientist, and one hybrid, and I guess yeah. I was a hybrid. But my yeah. favorite part was the dinner, where a historian and a political scientist had a smackdown contest to see who could insult the other the most. And it ended with the political scientists saying, uh, what you guys, what you historians do, we call trivia. And then the historian said, what you political scientists do, reducing things to two variables, that's what we call talking to small children. <laughs> and it was wonderful. But the best yeah. work really often is a hybrid, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the political scientists worked in the Bush NSC, Connie Rice, Peter Fever, Victor Cha, myself. Steve Krasner. Steve Krasner. Most of us came out and wrote history. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so you've written some really interesting um, pieces on how to think about history and, and, and how to misuse history. Mm-hmm. So how do you use history in statecraft? What's a simple guide for yeah. people listening? Well, I will I will try to keep it simple, but you know, whenever you ask a professor who's written a lot on this to you know, to keep it simple, I mean, so the first is understanding history is so much more than just analogies, right? I mean, that's often when it's misused is if we just grab one, one, one cheap analogy and try to cram it into something. So this new situation, X or Y is another Vietnam or another Iraq or another Munich or something. You know, those are some of the ones that are most, most misused. But rather, part of it is thinking about history as a way of learning vicarious lessons. So perhaps looking at, uh, you know, different, different mistakes or things that others have done in the past where we can take away the lessons from that without having to bear the costs. Part of it is looking at history as a laboratory of ideas. There's very little new under the sun, as Solomon says in the good book. Uh, so I remember when we were on the Bush NSC staff thinking about ways to try to bat- do the war of ideas with a jihadist ideology, spent a lot of time looking at uh, how did we wage the war of ideas in the Cold War and what were some of the institutions and instruments that we used there. So that was a, a way of using history as a, as a laboratory for, for ideas. 
history is often most important for understanding other states, our counterparties, right? I mean, so uh, while I don't pretend to be an expert on North Korea, I do know that we can't understand the current situation in North Korea without understanding North Korea's own history, how the Kim regime dynasty views itself and and its history, similarly with Xi Jinping or Putin or, or any others. So it's not just about looking at past Ameri- the history of American actions, but I can look looking at the, the history of, of, of others. And then we got this one especially from President Bush when I uh, talked to him about this shortly after he had left office. He said, history is so important for policymakers to take the long view, the long perspective, because if you're only driven by polls or headlines, that may make one particular policy choice more appealing than others. But if you're thinking about how will this be remembered in history, how will this look in history, that can give you strength and resolve to sometimes make tougher choices that may not be so popular at the time. One example he used from, from Asia is he said, look, as much as Truman was incredibly unpopular as president over the Korean War and, you know, ends obviously in a stalemate and he you know, leaves office with some of the lowest approval ratings ever in early 1953, because Truman had had the resolve to at least, you know, sort of stay the course and protect uh, South Korea's sovereignty and leave American forces uh, forces behind, over time, that obviously became, you know, a key linchpin to our security ar- architecture in Asia, our alliance system, uh, South Korea's eventual transition in the 1980s to a, to a democracy or you know, transition to a, to a market economy. So Bish talked about that in the context of that's partly where he got the moral resolve and strength to make the Iraq surge decision, which mm-hmm. again was tremendously unpopular at the time. But he was thinking, you know, not just about what will this do for my poll ratings or relations with Congress tomorrow, but how will this look in history, just as Truman made some, some of those tough calls with South Korea, you know, 70 some years earlier. John Lewis Gaddis was your he was my uh, dissertation, dissertation advisor, advisor. Yeah. and in his new book, which is you know a smorgasbord of of history and classics and popular culture, yeah. Augustine as grand strategist. Yes, yeah. where he comes out, in my view, is it teaches you humility, mm-hmm. um, and it teaches you contingency, and as yeah. you said, vicariously, you can experience others' mistakes. Do you buy the idea that you can think in time, as Newstat and others have said, that you can sort of uh, understand a problem if you understand how it has evolved? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, Dick Neustadt and Ernie May and their their classic thinking in time on the use of history for policy have that wonderful analogy of thinking of history as a stream, right? Uh, and so we enter the stream at a particular juncture, but we know that there are headwaters that have you know come 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 before us. There are events and people and things that have flown before us, so we're not you know a tabula rasa, not making blank slate. And then we also know that there will be downstream consequences of of our actions, so we can shape and steer the stream in particular ways. Um, but again. Have the humility to recognize what has come before us, and also a certain amount of deference uh, and beholdenness to our our successors in ways that we are going to be steering the stream as, as well. So I think it's a really powerful uh, analogy. And again, yeah, history teaching humility is uh, definitely another one of the the important commandments of it. Yeah, I mean the other key uh, insight from Gaddis's book is that the the essence of good grand strategy is understanding that there are some. Uh, unsolvable tensions between your national objectives. If there weren't these tensions, strategy would be easy. Yeah, I mean, the hard yeah. grand strategy is is understanding there are these tensions. You understand that best if you understand the history of an issue. As I often tell my students, policymaking is not about choosing between a bad and a good option. It's about choosing between a bad option, a really bad option, and a terrible option. And your job is to pick the bad option. That's right. Um, There's nothing like working in the White House for five years to teach you humility. Um, So let's apply some of these historical frameworks to thinking about the Asia chessboard strategy in Asia and start with one important historical legacy issue, Mm. which is the Vietnam War, which Mm. frames so much of how we think about American society, American uh, foreign and military policy, but also our our relations in Asia. What does your 
short takeaway on the lesson of Vietnam. How would you? How would you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, I I start with this observation, which is just about every American uh, would agree that the United States needs to learn the lessons of Vietnam, and yet hardly anyone can agree on what those lessons are because they are they are so abundant and so conflicting and can go can go different ways. Um, My own, I'll just highlight a few takeaways. I think from uh, from from Vietnam. The first is the awareness of limits. Right. I mean, it's the first war in our nation's history that we actually definitively lose. You know, the, the first major uh, expeditionary foreign policy operation that was a, was a true debacle. And it was an important chastening for, for the United States of realizing that as powerful uh, and as successful as we've been as a country, there are some profound limits on what we can, can accomplish. And that, of course, explains quite a bit of um, our reluctance and some succeeding, you know, particularly in the next couple of decades after Vietnam to do any other, other interventions. The second big one is the need to align our use of force with our policy objectives. Again, without being too much of a simplistic armchair quarterback on on Vietnam, I think a pretty fair critique is that uh, very consistently throughout the war, there was a real misalignment between the way we were trying to use the force and what our ultimate policy policy objectives were. And that's why, of course, that then, you know, as you know, I'm currently writing a book on Reagan administration foreign and defense policy, and this is what directly shapes the Weinberger Doctrine, right? Uh, which I think is actually an imperfect doctrine. I don't subscribe to everything about it, but I appreciate it was at least an effort to bring uh, the use of force much more in alignment with overall strategy and, and goals. Um, Another takeaway from from Vietnam, which we see especially with the Reagan Doctrine, was a uh, a much greater reliance on proxy forces. So Reagan realized, okay, instead of sending 600,000 American ground troops somewhere, uh, let's you know p- supply the Mujahideen in Afghanistan with weapons. Let's supply the Contras with weapons. Let's supply the United Rebels in Angola with weapons. Let's supply the you know anti-Vietnamese um, forces in Cambodia with with weapons. Um, sometimes that succeeds. Sometimes it doesn't. Not easy, but I think that's a very direct. Uh, take away from Vietnam and actually expanded the the American uh, toolkit a bit. The final big uh, takeaway for me on Vietnam is the the need to uh, preserve and sometimes restore American credibility because it was such a tremendous blow to our credibility. I mean, this explains some of the tactics that Nixon and Kissinger were trying to use toward, towards the end. You know, rather controversial, but I understand what they're getting at there is trying to find a way to extricate us from that conflict uh, that still preserves our credibility elsewhere in, in the world, which I do think is... Um, um, a very important but underappreciated part of the, the national security toolkit. Rich Armitage was on the podcast uh, just before you and, uh, of course, was on the ground and at sea in Vietnam, got the South Vietnamese Navy out of Vietnam, and then worked on Asia policy the whole rest of his career. I asked him about his experience and what it meant to him the rest of his career, and one of the most important things he said was the importance of American commitment mm, and yeah. uh, the price you pay when you can't live up to the commitment. Yeah. And it made him a real champion of the U.S.-Japan alliance and other um, forward presence in Asia. When I talked to Rich uh, for my Reagan book, because, of course, he was so key on U.S.-Asia relations in the Reagan administration, and I asked, you know, when and how did he first become appreciative of the importance of Japan as a strategic partner? He says, oh, when I was going to Vietnam, because yep. I was, you know, transiting through Japan countless times, and I realized, yeah, this is a pretty large, unsinkable aircraft carrier in a, in a strategic part of the world. Yeah, he said that on the podcast with us as well, and uh, I think one of the other lessons I'd, I'd add to your excellent list is um, Vietnam forced us to return to our Mahanian roots, which mm-hmm. is offshore balancing, the first island chain. And mm-hmm. the Guam doctrine under Nixon was about pulling back to the first island chain. Land wars in Asia, not a good idea if you yeah. can avoid them at all. 
I also think we probably learned something about regional strategy. So much of what we did in Vietnam was based on how we thought it would be perceived in Europe mm -hmm. and not the rest of Asia. And, and I can tell you, as an Asia guy, one other takeaway is the Vietnamese are pretty damn tough. Oh, yeah. yeah. The good news is they're kind of sort of on our side this time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Again, one of, uh, and that's another thing that history can teach us, actually, particularly in Asia, is how possible it is for adversaries to become allies. I mean, look at just, you know, incredible transformation in the U.S.-Japan relationship from, you know, the end of the end of the war in 45 to, uh, you know, the peace treaty in, in 51 and and them now, you know, then then as now being our most important ally in the region. Or again, Vietnam, who, who would have thought, uh, you know, as recently as a couple decades ago that they'd be an emerging important strategic partner for us. You'll recall that President Bush on the campaign stump in 2004 used to talk about how his best friend among world leaders, or one of his best friends, was the Japanese prime minister, mm -hmm. Junichiro Kuzumi. And his dad had fought against the Japanese. And he just, particularly in the context of Iraq and Afghanistan, found that kind of remarkable and inspiring. His dad had been, yeah, shot down shot by the down. Japanese. Yeah, so. And held no ill will at all. Yeah. But it played well with the crowds, mm -hmm. at least Republican crowds he was talking to. Yeah. Let me ask you about Reagan and George. Yeah. I, I, in my book, I, I reckon that uh, George Shultz was probably the best secretary of state we had on Asia. Um, but but how do you assess Reagan? You're doing a new book on his foreign policy. Yeah. Um, how do you look at Reagan overall as a strategist, people like George Shultz? Yeah, well, first, let me say, I actually, I'll go you one further on George Shultz. I think he was our finest secretary of state of the 20th century, full stop, not mm. just on Asia. So, um, and I know there's some tough competition there, Jim Baker, Henry Kissinger, Dean Acheson, and I have you know great reverence for all of them. But I actually, uh, I'll go even one further. I mean, Schultz is going to come out very, very positively in, in, in my book, and I think the historical record bears, bears that out. Um, so, a couple big takeaways uh, thus far, to give a you know, sneak preview of the book, which is still a you know, couple of years from actually appearing on the shelves, uh, on, on the role of history and strategy in, um, in, in the Reagan administration. Uh, the first is Reagan brought a much more acute historical sensibility to his strategy towards the Soviets than I'd earlier, earlier appreciated. Uh, but this also applies to Asia. So, and there were some very formative historical episodes for, for Reagan, some from his own life, some from his reading. The first is he was deeply shaped by World War II. And World War II for him was not first and foremost a great power contest, but was rather a battle of ideas between the free world and totalitarianism. So also with the Cold War, um, even though the detente framework from the 70s had treated the Cold War as primarily a great power contest with you know ideology off in the side, for Reagan it's first and foremost a battle of ideas between these two rival systems that just happens to have a, a great power dimension to it. And that's, uh, he was drawing that very much from World War II, um, and so his takeaways there were the importance of fighting that battle of ideas, of delegitimizing legitimizing Soviet communism, uh, of, of maintaining strong uh, allies among, among the free world. Um, another big Reagan takeaway, and this applies especially to Asia, is from the 1930s, he was deeply averse to protectionism because mm -hmm. he saw that protectionism not only had spread global poverty, uh, but also had led to militarism and the rise of World War II. And so this is why in the U.S.-Japan relationship, he was so focused on transforming Japan, uh, the U.S.-Japan relationship from primarily economic rivalry to strategic partnership and strongly resisted uh, demands from the American people, from Congress, from a lot of the media to get into a real trade war with Japan and to put you know, severe tariffs on them. Yeah, they had to deal with you know, monetary policy and the Plaza Accords. They had to deal with um, you know, some voluntary export restraints. It's not like he wasn't doing anything on that. But for Reagan, uh, he, 
over and over again. He's given speeches making the case to the American people. Protectionism is the wrong way to go uh, with a U.S.-Japan relationship or U.S.-Taiwan or, or any others. One of the historical insights that he actually got from his reading, particularly with the Soviets, is he um, read a book by Suzanne Massey called Land of the Firebird, which was a history of like a thousand-year history of Russia up until 1917. So it's Russia before the Soviet Union. And that gave Reagan a real appreciation for Ru the Russian people and Russian culture and enabled him to distinguish the Russian people from the Soviet system. So that's why he's constantly engaged in outreach directly to the Russian people, trying to support Russian dissidents, trying to appeal to the best of Russian culture. His hostility was not to Russia or to Russians. It was to Soviet communism, which he saw as this kind of alien imposition, this parasite on this historic civilization and tradition. And so he got that from his own, his own reading of history. Did you get to interview Schultz? So I book? did. Yeah. In so, San Francisco? Yeah. In his yeah. apartment? Uh, no, it was actually in his office at, at Stanford. Sorry. Uh, so, yeah, I interviewed so him in his, in his apartment so. for my book. And uh, he welcomed me at the door and he said, you like the Pacific? And I said, yes, Mr. Secretary. He says, come with me and walk me to the balcony at the back of his apartment, which overlooked San Francisco Bay. And he points and he says, there it is. And he gave me this history of how he got interested in the Pacific uh, and, and, and how committed he was. But the reality was Schultz and Weinberger fought like cats and dogs in the oh. administration, not about Asia, yeah. but about arms control, about the Soviet Union. Isn't that a bit of a black mark on Reagan's leadership in foreign policy that they had these huge fights? So. Or is that just unavoidable in any administration? Oh, no, it, 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 it certainly is. And I'll even go one further. Again, even though my book will be positive overall in the Reagan administration, I will you know, pull no punches on the organizational chaos and, and dysfunction. And it, you know, exemplifying that, of course, was the bad relations between Schultz and Weinberg and state and DOD. But also, you know, Reagan goes through six national security advisors in eight years. A couple of them get indicted. One you know, attempts attempt suicide. A couple others get 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 fired. Uh, the NSC was uh, until Frank Carlucci came along in '87, a pretty pretty chaotic mess. And when you look at some of the Reagan administration's policy failures, those pretty directly stem from the organizational failures. So the Beirut mission '83, you know, the the Marine barracks bombing, that was it, it was a tragedy. Iran was behind it, but it was also driven by the fact that there was this paralysis between state and DoD over what the Marines' mission was and what our strategic goals were there. And because Reagan hadn't resolved it, um, uh, you know, disaster ensued. Iran-Contra is another one. Yeah, there were some bad policy ideas behind Iran-Contra, but at its core, it was a classic case of organizational dysfunction, lack of accountability, and NSC getting too operational. Um, and uh, so, so the question is, how did the Reagan administration succeed despite some of these things? I think there's a couple keys. One, when Reagan himself had a clear strategic vision, especially as it did with the Soviets and got, got on board, uh, he was able to neutralize those fights, uh, put his thumb on the scale, set the agenda, you know, be, be decisive. The second was, frankly, when he and Schultz forged a really close partnership and just started to kind of marginalize some, some of the dissenters. Uh, and, you know, a, a committed president and a committed secretary of state working in tandem is a very, very powerful, potent uh, partnership. We saw it with uh, Truman and Acheson. Mm -hmm. We saw it with, uh, with Nixon and Kissinger at their best. We saw it with Bush and Baker. We certainly saw it with Reagan and Schultz. The beginning of the Reagan administration was an organizational dumpster fire, yes. <laughs> as the term is sometimes applied to President yeah. Trump, uh, especially in Asia. Yeah. You know, you had Al Haig, who was, uh, you know, out of the Kissinger view that China is a future for the U.S. and Asia, pretty negative on Japan. But you had George Schultz, who and, was and very pro-Japan. And tossed, you know, Taiwan under the bus, too. Yeah. Huge chaos. You read the headlines in the newspapers from 1981, and it's 
it's pretty chaotic. Yeah. Very chaotic. Yeah. And, and part of that, too, is Reagan himself wasn't paying a lot of attention to foreign policy in 81. He had three priorities in 81, the economy, the economy, and the economy. Yeah. And he was all about getting his tax package through and getting getting inflation down and then creating the resources, of course, for a defense budget increase and, and other things. This is not to excuse the organizational chaos and the foreign policy ineptitude during, during that year, but it's, uh, it's in the beginning of 82 um, when he turns and starts focusing on, on on foreign policy that you start, of course, he gets rid of Al Haig a few months later, brings Schultz in, that you start to see some uh, some progress. Is it 82 when the NSC document comes out, NSC, I forgot the number, uh, to actually roll back Soviet communism? Yeah, because so- from basically Nixon on, maybe even Johnson on, mm-hmm. uh, and especially during Carter, it was the U.S. strategy was extremely retrenched and cautious and status quo oriented. Yeah. Um, Reagan wants to roll back. It's 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 around yeah. eighty two. Yeah. So in January of eighty two, Bill Clark becomes a national security advisor. Uh, he's um, not been treated well by history, but I, I think he deserves a, a better mm-hmm. shake than that. And he oversees the the drafting of two key strategy documents: NSDD thirty two, which is the overall national security strategy, and that comes out in, in eighty two, and that starts laying out the rollback principles. And then in eighty three, first drafted by Dick Pipes and then by Jack Matlock, NSDD seventy five, and that's the more direct strategy towards the Soviet Union. And those two documents read. Very very well in, in in light of history. And here's the thing. I'm interested in this podcast in regional strategy, but mm. <clears throat> effective regional strategy is impossible unless you have a coherent overall strategy. And, mm. and those two documents framed an approach in Asia that guided the Pacific Command, the State Department. Um, sh- we shored up our alliance with Japan. Mm-hmm. We used the Japanese archipelago. Rich Armitage was a key part of this. Mm-hmm. Um, instituted the maritime strategy. At the end of the Carter administration, Soviet boomers, nuclear subs, were with ease um, going to the west coast of the U.S., threatening us. By 1983-84, they were afraid to leave the Sea of Okhotsk. Mm-hmm. And it it was a measurable and successful strategy mm-hmm. and would not have been possible without that larger yeah. Global frame. Yeah. And one of the key concepts in my book is going to be how the Reagan Reagan and Schultz pretty deftly integrated force and diplomacy, which is using the American defense buildup not to launch a bunch of wars, but rather to strengthen our dipl- diplomatic hand and roll back Soviet adventurism uh, and in turn bolster our, our the confidence of our allies and their defense spending, too. So fans of the current president um, say he's Reagan-esque um, because he's bold and supports a strong defense. I think on defense spending, that's probably uh, f- mm. fair, but he's protectionist mm. compared to Reagan, and he's pretty tough on allies. What do you think? Is there a parallel at all between Trump and Reagan? But more to the point, is there a way, you know, the, Re- the Reagan lesson might actually be convincing to President Trump, that he mm. might actually take, there are aspects he might take on board that could fit with his worldview, or is it just too different? I would hope President Trump would pay more attention, pay more heed to the Reagan example. From what I've seen thus far, um, President Trump could not be more dissimilar to to Reagan. I mean, so again, Reagan deeply committed to allies, hasn't necessarily been the case with Trump. Reagan deeply committed to free trade, uh, hasn't been the case with Trump. Reagan deeply committed to to values, especially um, after after 82, to democracy and human rights promotion, which is why we see some of the successful democratic transitions in Asia, Philippines, Taiwan, Mm -hmm. uh, South, South Korea. But that said, yeah, my, my word to President Trump, if he happens to be listening to this podcast mm-hmm. or, or in, in, any of his staff, is looking at some of their concerns about our allies who are free riding and underfunding their defense. Reagan, The Reagan administration had those same concerns. But again, as you know very well in the case with uh, Japan, Reagan persuaded Nakasone to, over time, almost triple defense, Japan's defense budget, as well as, of course, extend Japan's uh, defense perimeter out, what, a thousand, thousand kilometers. Thousand, yeah. And he did it not through publicly shaming and scolding 
building uh, Nakasone, but through hugging him closely uh, yeah. and, and quiet diplomacy and assuring him of America's commitment to Japan. And that, I think, created uh, both the political space and the confidence for, for Japan to increase, in, increase its defense spending. Again, we've already mentioned uh, human rights and democracy, but you know, tremendous asymmetric advantages the United States has, which Reagan wielded very effectively. I would encourage the Trump administration to, to, to do the same. Uh, and of course, uh, Reagan and Schultz knew that over time, uh, free trade, economic liberty are much better for America and much better for the, for the world uh, than, than, than protectionism. That Reagan worldview, I think, is still pretty much the sweet spot for uh, members of Congress and the Republican Party and a lot of the president's own administration. So what you're saying should resonate. Yeah. Part of a small briefing with Senator Romney yesterday, and he was uh, quoting Reagan at length and clearly takes, you know, Reagan as his lodestar, as do many Senator Ben Sass, Senator Cornyn, many other um, Republican senators. So Gaddis's book, which I read about five times in grad school, um, was called Strategies of Containment, plural. We're now clearly embarked on a new chapter in U.S.-China relations marked by rivalry, geopolitical rivalry, mm-hmm. competition, um, the national security strategy, the national defense strategy, mm-hmm. say it. Hank Paulson, mm-hmm. former Treasury Secretary, even says it. But I always come back to you know Gaddis's argument. There were strategies, plural, of containment. What are the lessons from the Cold War for how we approach China? It, it, what does victory look like yeah. in this new strategy? Or will there be multiple strategies? Yeah, I, I do think. I mean, so much of strategy is context dependent, and I don't want to take that as a punt on it. But I'm, I'm, you know, wary. You know, the the two traps we can fall into with strategy is one is just pure platitudes and bromides, and and the other is trying to have a very rigid template that one, you know, a, a one mm-hmm. one size one size fits all. So with the U.S. China relationship right now, parts of it are coming to look similar to to the Cold War. You know, certainly it's take it for. For one, the the competition is is global now. It's not just you know directly between U.S. and China, but it's playing out in the Middle East and Latin America and, and Africa. There is somewhat of an ideological component to it, as far as China you know rather, you know pushing its authoritarian uh, capital capitalist model and trying to support other authoritarians, both nuclear powers, and we want to you know desperately avoid a, a nuclear exchange. On the other hand, the there's a number of dissimilarities. The biggest one is the economic interdependence between the U.S. and China right now, and I know we're trying to partially unwind some of that, but the U.S. and Soviet Union just never had anywhere near that degree of economic in, in, in interdependence. Um, in a lot of ways, it's been good for the U.S. and China. In other ways, it's been very bad for, for the U.S. And of course, China has, has taken taken advantage of that. Um, but that's the the biggest area where the Cold War Cold War analogy breaks down. So, strategic principles. I mean, uh, from the Cold War, uh, we need to double down and reinforce our allies in in Asia, our existing alliances. You know, Japan, South Korea, Australia, especially, but also our emerging partners who may not yet be formal allies. In India would be a, a primary one. Um, yeah, Reagan in 1982 issued a national presidential, the NSDD, they call them then, mm-hmm. um, saying that regardless of whether it's aligned with the U.S. or not, the rise of India is in our strategic interests. Yeah. Very prescient. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Very prescient. So you, you look back, so much of our world today was envisioned in, in, the, in the 1980s by, by, by Reagan and Schultz. Your Reagan book is going to be great. I can't wait, but I'll have to. So when when are we going to get it? Yeah, well, it's due to the publisher uh, next December, and so hopefully it'll appear um, probably summer of 2021. Great. And Will and Bowden, we can uh, see your good work in the meantime at the Clement Center yes. at UT Austin. And you're also, of course, responsible for uh, the National Security Review, mm-hmm. Texas National, Texas Security, National Review. Security Review. That's right. Yeah. And War on the Rocks is also a partner of yours. So, yeah. um, so there'll be plenty of things people can look at yeah. to breathe history and think about the Asia chessboard using the past, using statecraft lessons from not only Reagan, but other American administrations, thinking about values and democracy in our foreign policy. It's been a joy having you. Good luck with the book. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. 
For more on strategy and the Asia program's work, visit the CSIS website at csis.org and click on the Asia program page.